Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I can't remember which episode of your podcast it was, but it clicked. might have been April Vokey or I can't remember who it was, but you were talking about hey, how do we document and talk about some of these really natural, hidden, beautiful areas and tell their story, do right by uh, not only the story, but do it without exploiting them and having everybody that hasn't done any work just go find these spots. And that's something that comes up a lot, especially in my listener group. And then on Facebook and social media, people, you know, they'll really hammer somebody for, hey, why are you telling people that our state's, you know, such a good duck hunting state? Next thing you know, we're going to have a bunch of -of out-of-staters or the whole nine yards. But how do you do right by it by trying to get other people into the sport? I'm Ben Page from the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast, and you're listening to the Tom Rowland Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Waypoint TV. Over 70 producers have their extremely high-end content over there. You can watch it all for free on any device, anywhere, anytime you want to. Go to waypointtv.com, find out how. Today's episode is a very interesting one. I got a call from Benjamin Page, runs a great podcast called Foul Front. It's a waterfowl duck hunting podcast. And he talks about a lot of interesting things there. He had some ideas about what we could talk about. We had some similar ideas and similar kind of challenges as you uh, walk the fine line between promoting something and ruining something. You know, when is too much publicity for a secret spot? What is your responsibility to the people around you? If you go out and you're fishing a spot and only two other boats know about it and everybody's having a great time and catching plenty of fish or shooting plenty of ducks or or it's a spot that will withstand 
that much pressure and you go out and you give the exact coordinates out there on social media and the next day there are 14 trucks at the ramp instead of two. You know, what's what's your responsibility not only to the place, but what's your responsibility to the other hunters or fishermen that are out there? Where Where do you draw that line? So Benjamin proposed this to me and I thought it was pretty good conversation. Turns out we had way more in common than that. It was a great conversation. So uh, this is one that we're going to put out both on his podcast, Foul Front, and he's going to have a probably a completely different intro with his perspective of the conversation, and I'm putting it out there with my perspective of the conversation. So maybe listen to both. I don't know. But uh, he's got a great podcast. If you're interested in waterfowl hunting, check it out, Foul Front. And this is the conversation with Ben Page. Today on the podcast, we've got Tom Rowland, and you may not know him as a duck hunter. You probably know him as quite a fisherman. He's the host of the Saltwater Experience, and today we're bringing him on to talk to us a little bit about his journey and path into the uh, outdoor world, and also public lands. How are you doing today, Tom? Man, I'm doing great. I appreciate you having me on. I like your show, and it's great to be here. Yeah, no, I'm very excited to have you on, and I was showing my wife some some of the YouTube videos and whatnot, and she was, uh, you know, she was pretty impressed. And uh, she said that she wishes I was a fisherman rather than a hunter because, <laughs> well, on a, on occasion, on occasion, it is uh, more pleasant to be sitting on the bow of a boat, eighty five degrees, slick, calm, nice palm trees and stuff, than uh, you know, ice on the bottom of the duck blind and and raining. Yeah, that's and that's I think that's exactly where her head was when she said that. So how did you get into fishing? I guess um, start there. Well, I've got a very good relationship with my dad. And uh my dad spent a lot of time with me in the in the outdoors as a as a kid. Really his you know, it's kind of funny, his primary interest in the outdoors was duck hunting. And duck hunting for me, was really the foundation of of my outdoor experience. And um, he loved to take me hunting and duck hunting, got me started doing that. But we also did a lot of fishing. For whatever reason, I gravitated a little bit more towards the fishing than the duck hunting. I mean, I love duck hunting. And I love deer hunting and turkey hunting and, and dove hunting. And that's basically kind of what we did in the Tennessee area, those, those types of hunting. And then, but then there was this fishing and, and he took me fishing, uh, you know, a, a good bit, but it was an activity. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like an avid hobby. It was like something that we, we just did every now and then. And, uh, I loved it. I mean, I just, I just couldn't get enough. I would say somewhere around high school kind of lost the interest in, in going as much. Maybe you find girls in a driver's license and stuff like that. And, and so you're not, you know, you kind of get sidetracked a little bit. And somewhere around my senior year of high school, I started getting more and more interested in doing more and more fishing again. I don't know. The big change was, uh, I went to the university of Alabama and then that first summer I was there, I, I had an opportunity to go work in Yellowstone National Park. I went out there and I had never seen anything like that before. And it was a life changer for sure. The fishing, the trout fishing, fly fishing was just unlike anything I had ever done or seen. And 
it really um what what was interesting to me is it brought a lot of the same feelings that I got when I was hunting back into fishing and it was a type of fishing that I had never done before. I mean it was you you would see the fish before you would cast to them. Very rarely had I ever done anything like that in Tennessee. It was just I don't know. I got I got pretty interested in it <laughs> and the next thing you know I was guiding um in in Jackson, Wyoming. I did that for about 7 years as a drift boat guide and somewhere along the line I decided I couldn't spend the winter in Wyoming cuz it was too cold for a Tennessee boy and I went about as far as you could go to uh Key West, Florida and got started down there and and made my career as a as a saltwater guide and um you know that eventually turned into tournaments and the tournaments turned into uh a television show and which which we have branched off into two other television shows and and a couple other things going on so it's been a it's been an interesting ride in a lot of ways it seems like all of that happened in about 5 minutes and in other ways it seems like it's been several lifetimes <laughs> that that this has all been going on but i mean seriously it it just seems like i was I mean, my son's going to be 21 this this uh, weekend, and um, it seems like, I mean, that's about the time that I started doing, you know, as a as a career or or making money at fishing. That's about the time that it started for me, and um, I'm just looking at him, going, "Man, it just seems like I blinked my eyes, and and that was me, you know, just not very long ago." And <laughs> I don't know, it goes fast. Yeah, I've got, you know, so interesting. You said it all happened in about five minutes. Um, one day you're out there guiding, you said, and then the, you know, the next day you find yourself uh, the guide of, uh, excuse me, the host of a TV show. What did that look like for you? Well, it was out of necessity. You know, the, the story really goes a little deeper we were i was i was doing a lot of guiding i was guiding over 300 days a year and in key west florida you have the opportunity to do that there's not a lot of places that you can do that you need to have a couple of things as as part of that recipe you need to have a place where you know you have a 365 day season in key west you can fish every single day uh weather dependent in addition to that you have to have an influx of people so it needs to be a tourist destination you know, there's a few places around that, that will fit that bill. The Florida Keys is definitely one where, you know, there's there are a lot of guides getting 300 days a year. And, you know, that's a, that's a lot of fishing. But somewhere along the line, I, I decided, you know, maybe I think it was something as simple as, you know, I just want to get some free fishing tackle. Like this, buying all this fishing tackle is killing me. So, you know, I'm putting this fishing rod and in hundreds and hundreds of people's hands, they're buying it. Doesn't it seem like the company would would maybe want some kind of a partnership where I could start working with them? And and I was just kind of, I, I didn't know anything about sponsorship. I didn't know how sponsorship worked, but it just seemed like I was selling a lot of stuff for somebody that maybe there was a some sort of an agreement that could be made where I would get tackle and they would end up selling a lot of it. Well, turns out that's basically the sponsorship model. And so eventually that happened. I got a little bit of advice from, you know, when you're, when you're doing that fishing 300 days a year and you, you end up fishing with a lot of 
really successful people and a lot of really smart people and a lot of people that that really you would never have you would never have the opportunity to get that that kind of time with them like a like a CEO of Home Depot or, or you know some some giant company where other people are dying to get this guy's time and you've got him on the boat for 8 hours you know and I never took the CEO of Home Depot that's just a that's just a uh, an example but you know you you you're you're giving this person something that that they really want and need in their life and that is basically all you want to do is show them a good time and so you develop a really good relationship with these type of people and in turn they want to share some of their knowledge with you and help you out a little bit and so you know i'm talking to a lot of these people and they're like you know you have a good thing going here but you need to expand your audience, you know, like how many people, and this is before the internet, obviously, um, but they're like, how many people, um, you know, do you talk to in a year? I'm like, well, I'll take, you know, I fish 300 days a year and it's usually with one or two people. And so they say, okay, we'll just stop there. That's, that's 600 people. So how could you expand your audience to be bigger than 600 people? Because you do have a very strong impact on those 600 people, but how could you have a bigger impact on more people? Uh, I don't know. Um, maybe write some articles. And they're like, yeah, that's what you need to do. You know, write articles, take photographs, you know, get out there any way that you can and expand your audience. And, and basically, I got the same advice from Shaw Grigsby, a professional bass fisherman. And he, this one little piece of advice was something that stuck with me my whole career and basically is is you know the 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 one piece of advice that we really go off of in building our business and everything and it is simple it's you are worth the size of your audience i started doing tournaments for for that reason like if you won a tournament you know there was an article in the in the newspaper everybody at that tournament knew that you won so you're expand, you're expanding your audience more so than just a daily guided trip and in trying to do this, uh, started fishing more and more tournaments in the Florida Keys has a tremendous amount of, of these tournaments like the Redbone Series, which is a, uh, a charity event which raises money for cystic fibrosis, but it's a, it becomes an incredibly highly competitive environment when you have the best guides fishing with the best anglers in these tournaments. And even though there really isn't any prize money there, it's some of the most competitive environment that I've ever been in. Because it's a, it, it's more than money. It's it's a, it's an ego, and it's a it's a, uh, you know, a big big thing for your guide resume if you can win one of these tournaments. So everybody wants to win, and the anglers want to win as much as the guides, and and uh, it becomes very competitive. But it's also very small, and um, so I, I was doing those, and then I just saw that there was this other opportunity, this professional redfish tournament, ESPN, or actually it was the IFA first came out with a with a tournament series that would travel around just like bass fishing and uh, would travel from Texas back down to Florida all the way up to North or South Carolina. And they would have these tournaments and they were giving away some real money. They were giving away boats. And so I thought, well, maybe that's that's the deal. So I investigated that a little bit and turns out it needed to be a two-man team. And so that's how I got hooked up with my partner, Rich Tudor, we decided to, uh, he was my main competition in the uh, Redbone tournaments. And 
So I kind of got together with him one day and decided, yeah, maybe I'll try fishing with this guy and uh, maybe we'd make a good team. It turned out what we did. And um, so I started fishing those redfish tournaments. They were going pretty well. And then, then, then they expanded to the ESPN redfish tournaments. And so now these things are on ESPN. We're getting some real television coverage and some opportunities to uh, develop some sponsorship. And, uh, and so we started doing that. And everything was going pretty well. I had two babies at home and my wife at home. And it was hard to be away. But, you know, it looked like this was a pretty good direction to go in until Hurricane Charlie hit Key West when I was in Louisiana. And, you know, it was a real helpless feeling. I was away from my family, couldn't do anything. My wife couldn't get out. She had to take shelter in this fish house, which which has no windows, you know, it's concrete block building and it was safe and everything. And she was with our friends, but it just was a it just was a very helpless feeling. And I just looked at Rich and I was like, man, I am completely done with these tournaments. I'll never do another one again. And the only thing I want to do is go home and just I'm just gonna guide and be with my family. That's it. And at this point, Rich Where was, were you at when when Hurricane I was in Venice, Louisiana. My wife was in Key West, Florida. At this point, Rich was married, but he didn't have any kids. So he didn't quite understand like he would like he would today. But I was like, We're leaving. Put the boat on the trailer, start driving home. And I'm done. And you know, whatever. I'm you can have whatever sponsorship we've done, I'm I'm out. So on the way home, it's a long drive from Venice, Louisiana back to Key West. So we start asking some questions and he's like, well, how do you think we could continue to do something like this and stay at home? I don't know. You know, several hours go by and we keep talking. And I was like, well, you know, maybe we could do a TV show. And uh, he's like, oh, that sounds good. Do you know anything about doing a TV show? So, well, a little. And he's like, what do you know? And a couple of years before, or I guess a year or so before that, I had been invited to this ESPN Great Outdoor Games, which was a, a new thing. And it was, it was like all kinds of outdoor sporting things. Like uh, they had fly fishing, which is what I was in. Okay. They had uh, uh, lumberjack events. They had sporting dog events. They had, you know, retriever trials. And they basically just took all the competitive events in the outdoor world and put them all together in this outdoor Olympics kind of thing. And it, it, it was really good and very popular for a few years. But anyway, I had the good fortune of winning that first one. And when I, and it was a trout fishing competition, it was in New York and there was a casting competition. And then the way where you placed in the casting allowed you to pick the stretch of river you wanted to fish. And then basically the, the gold medal was given to the person who won the fishing. So that's what I won with the fishing part of it. So I came home and I was like, man, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to be booked forever and the phone's going to ring and there's going to be all kinds of opportunities. And <laughs> I got home and, and the phone never rang, like not, not once, like maybe a friend calls, say, Hey, I saw you on ESPN. That was pretty cool. So I'm sitting there thinking, man, I can't believe that happened. And, and, and nothing is happening. Like nobody's calling. And, but that's, that's pretty much how it goes. And so one of my clients, he's like, well, you got to make something happen. So I, was like, I don't know what that means, you know? And uh, he's like, well, send out a press release. I'm like, okay. And this is before Google. So I'm like, 
what's a press release? You know, I don't even know what a press release is and uh, or how to write one or what to do with it. This this newspaper writer kind of helped me that I knew, got a press release out and then, you know, you know, a few things started happening after that. But But I just realized that, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, the opportunities are not just going to come to you. Even if you win something big, you still have to work it, you know, a little bit. You've got to make things happen. You just can't sit back and and wait and expect that just because you win some fishing tournament that all of a sudden all this stuff is going to happen for you. So one of the things that was interesting about that was that I hailed from Key West and won this international trout fishing competition in New York. So there was a a hook there, which was Key West kid wins trout fishing competition. And, uh, and that made it kind of interesting read, I guess. So I called up a couple of these shows and asked them if they would want to come down and this is what was going on. And if they would want to come down and fish with me in Key West and every show that I called was like, yeah, that sounds great, man. We'll, we'll be down there right away. And I uh, ended up doing 30, 30 different television shows. So I had a little bit of experience with television shows and, and uh, just enough to, when Rich asked me if I knew anything about television shows, I was like, well, I've been on 30 of them. Didn't really look that hard. Um, I was very naive at the time. And uh, had I known what I'd know now, I don't know that we would have jumped right into it like we did, but it seemed pretty easy. And it didn't seem it didn't seem like there was all that much to it. So we went around to all the sponsors that we had. I mean, it, it didn't take very long. We didn't have very many, but we went around to the sponsors that we had, and we said, "Hey, instead of supporting us on this redfish tournament, would you consider doing a television show with us?" They said, "Sure, that sounds better than than the than the tournaments for all kinds of reasons." And um, so that's that's how it got started. The next thing you know, uh, Shaw Grigsby. I called him because he was the first show that I I was ever on, and I I leaned on him for a lot of advice. And he said, "You know what? If you're going to do a show, that's awesome. Why don't I'll even let you borrow my crew?" I said, "Okay." Well, he gave me a couple phone numbers. I called him and asked him how much it was going to cost, and we scraped together our pennies and filmed a pilot and got it started. I mean, it 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 was it was a good time because um, television. The television ratings were probably at the highest they've ever been. A lot has changed since that day. But the television ratings were really high. Outdoor programming was really popular. It was working very well for a lot of these companies to uh, to sponsor a television show and then end up selling some product. So it was the time was right. And uh, I don't know, next thing you know, we're we're doing it. Um, <laughs> but like, it just kind of happened, but we also kind of made it happen, but it kind of happened out of necessity. Like, like the fact that I just couldn't spend any more time away from home, you know, that's basically how it got started. And then uh, since then, you know, we've, we've just, uh, seen all kinds of changes, you know, television landscape is, is changing daily. Uh, the internet is born, YouTube Every other thing going on in the world changes everyone's habits. And, you know, my life now is, is uh, it's an interesting mix of, of continuing to do exactly what we do, but also paying attention to every little, little trend that is going on and every little thing that is going on on the internet and digital, 
digital distribution and podcasts and everything else. And well, I was going to say, like, the thing is for me is, it, you know, there's like six different things that you have to kind of to do, I think, or, or six, like right now, you know, you got your Instagram, Facebook, you know, YouTube, all, you know, these like different uh, platforms. And I, I suppose that gets pretty difficult to manage. Um, and then, you know, to also just be out and go fishing. You know? Yeah. Well, the going fishing part, you know, has always been the easiest part of the deal. You know, that would, <laughs> people would ask me that a lot. Like, what does it look like to film a TV show? That must be really difficult. You know, you got a, you got a second camera boat following you around. You're trying to do things with two boats and a bunch of people. And, and they're, they're saying, you know, you can't cast into the sun, you know, like, like, you know, what the shot that's being presented to you, the fish pops up over there to the left and, and the, the camera guy's saying, no, man, I can't shoot that. It's right into the sun. We, we'll never see anything. And, you know, th- those are challenges that, that you don't expect. And it, it definitely makes it a little bit harder and it makes it harder to, well, it makes it a lot harder. Everything moves way slower. You know, the camera guys are there to make something beautiful and you're there to catch some fish. It's the the two don't go together hand in hand at all. And so everything, you know, as a tournament angler, you know, your job is to catch as many fish as you can as fast as possible. As a TV show host, your job is to catch one fish and document it really well. You know, that's with with the light in the right direction and make sure everybody's microphones are working and on and on down the line, all of these things that you never think about when you're just out there fishing. Not to mention that you're sneaking up on a fish that is a wild animal that is, that is, you know, very spooky. And now you're trying to do it with two boats. And, you know, it's not just you and your, your experienced client out there being very quiet and not making any sounds at whatsoever. It's five camera guys that may may or may not have ever been fishing before and they're slamming hatches and you know cooler lids are dropping and i mean just every manner of noise that that you would never have on a regular day of fishing well as challenging as that sounds that's the easiest part of this business by far by far the easiest part is going fishing and being successful catching fish under those type of conditions, not to mention that every time that we turn the cameras on, the wind starts blowing about 35 miles an hour for some reason. Not sure why oh, yeah. that happens. Still trying to figure that one out. But um, still, that's, that's the easiest. Uh, the hardest is, you know, developing the, the relationships with the, with the companies that you work with and, and then maintaining those relationships. And then you know, figuring out what the best delivery of this content is. Like, how do you, how do you get it out there in a way that, that is entertaining and authentic and, and also, you know, effective? Like, why would a sponsor want to be part of this? And, and that's really the, that's the hardest part, you know, and there's, there's all kinds of negotiations with television networks and, and other things. And, and, you know, we don't have any training in any of that. All of this is the school of hard knocks for us. Like it just, we just had to learn how to do it. Nobody 
taught us how, and we didn't have any formal training at all. So it's just been, it's just been out of necessity. And, you know, I, I, I kind of think that that's, in a lot of ways, that's, that's our greatest advantage is that we, we didn't know. We, you know, we asked the dumb questions. We did the things that seemed impossible to somebody that had a lot more experience than us. But we did it because we were naive and young and dumb and didn't see any other way. You know, so a lot of times your inexperience can turn into, you know, your, your greatest asset. And <laughs> a lot of times it doesn't look like that from the outside. From somebody looking in, you look like you're about to commit suicide. You know, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing things that seem reckless and, and, uh, and just things that, that people with more experience would never do. But, you know, as a young person that, that has a goal, you just don't see any other way. So you just do it like that. And that's in every business, you know. It's like not just television or fishing or hunting or anything like that. That's, I think that's the way that a lot of people do it. Like just, you know, right. rogues, renegades. Or that's what the world sees them as, is rogues and renegades. But they're probably not. They're probably just trying to figure it out, man. And they just... They just, because of whatever their experience level is and they're at that point in their life, they're like, well, this way seems to make sense to me and we have these resources, you know, and so we're just going to do it like this. And then they get themselves in a situation to where you just have to make it happen and it happens. It's funny like that. I think the biggest thing that, you know, you've said about that is, is okay, you had this big, awesome opportunity and you thought that phone was just going to, you know, ring away. <clears throat> but you still have to go make it happen. And I think there's a lot of people that are waiting, you know, a lot, there's a lot of people out there that want to be, you know, content creators and want to, you know, turn uh, what they're doing into something that pays, you know, the bills and puts food on their, uh, on their plate. And uh, you got to go out and I guess, like you said, you got to capitalize on those opportunities. Yeah. Well, capitalize on them. And then, actually, you know, create the opportunity. Because in a lot of ways, when you're trying to do something for a living that you love, there's not a roadmap. Like, like, you know, you want to be a professional duck hunter. Okay, name a professional duck hunter. I mean, is there such a thing? I don't know. There's a couple of people that, that are, are making a good living, but they're, they're probably outfitters and they're probably you know, they have all kinds of things going on that allow them to duck hunt. Their, their money comes from duck hunting in some way, shape, or form. But if your goal is to be the one pulling the trigger in the blind and somehow get paid for that, well, there's not a real good roadmap to that. Right. So if you, I'm not saying it's impossible at all because with, with YouTube now, you could be a content creator that, that has a YouTube channel for duck hunting and you are the one that's calling, you're pulling the trigger. You are, it's, it's documenting your duck hunting experience and you could end up making a lot of money like that, but there's not a roadmap. You know, it's not like being a lawyer or a doctor or, or, you know, an accountant or something to where it's like, yeah, you got to go to school. You got to do this. You got to get this degree. You got to move on. And there's countless of people that you could look to, to say, well, how did he do it? You know? And, and as you get more and more, you know, niche oriented, 
uh, and, and people have these ideas of things that they want to do for a living, that becomes more and more difficult, but not impossible. Like the world has opened up to where I believe that you can make a, a career out of and make more money than anyone could ever imagine uh, 20 years ago by doing exactly what you want to do. But what it takes is a lot of creativity and a lot of, a lot of you know, trying to figure it out on your own. Because, like I say, there's no roadmap for, for most of these things that, you know, and, and maybe there is somebody that's, that's making a lot of money or, or a comfortable living pulling the trigger in a duck blind. Maybe. I don't know. If it, I mean, you would know better than me, but. I think there's a couple of people, but like you were saying that uh, they're not just, that's not the primary source of income. Uh, it's usually a marketing thing for their company or their product. Right. But it could be. You know, like, I mean, if that's, if that's somebody's, I mean, like it's something that we talk about on my podcast a lot is like how people get into the outdoor world, how people, how people, um, what their path is, you know, and, and everybody's path seems to be quite a bit different, but what I've, what I've been interested in doing is just getting the message out there that basically how, no matter how crazy your, your goal sounds to other people, Man, it's possible. It it is possible. And if you just stick with it, man, and and really be be super creative about it, you can make just about anything happen. And you can make a career out of just about anything. It's an interesting time in the world right now. It's yeah, it's it's not like uh, you know, our, you know, parents or grandparents generation where you had to go to work all day. Um, and then you came home and there was no connection to the outside world because there wasn't any internet. You had a phone, um, but you can, you know, you can do things after hours now and you can do, you can interact with people, you know, <laughs> from the convenience of your couch and through your cell phone and your computer yeah. and your laptop. 24 seven. But in addition to that, I mean, even when I started really the only way that, 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 that I could see that you were going to make a living being a fisherman was either being professional bass fisherman, which is incredibly competitive and, and, and very difficult lifestyle or being a guide. So you needed to have a tremendous amount of business to keep, keep you busy. The thing that changed was the internet. And when the internet came around now, you could be, you didn't have to have, well, there was another opportunity. There was another alternative. You didn't have to have a client on the boat every single day to be getting paid. Well, I guess I guess the other thing that was that existed in the in before the internet was like being a being a writer for a magazine yeah. or a photographer or something like that. But now, you know, you can you can create content. You could be, you know, you could be a podcaster. You could be a YouTuber. You can be a writer, you can have have social media pages. I mean, there's all kinds of opportunities now that there that there weren't just a few years ago. Right, it's really incredible. Well, now one thing that you know you said back in the day, um, and I mean you still do um, write some articles. Yeah, and I know that I think I was listening. I can't remember which episode of your podcast it was, but it clicked. Might have been April Vokey, or mm-hmm. I can't remember who it was, but you were talking about. Hey, how do we document and talk about 
some of these really natural, hidden, beautiful areas and tell their story, do right by um, not only the story, but do it without exploiting them and having everybody that hasn't done any work just go find these spots. Yeah. And that was, uh, that's something that comes up a lot, especially in my listener group. Yeah. Um, and then on Facebook and social media, people, you know, they'll really hammer somebody for, Hey, why are you telling people that our state's, you know, such a good duck hunting you know, state? Next thing you know, we're going to have a bunch of out-of-staters or uh, the whole nine yards. But how do you do right by it by trying to get other people into the sport? That's a million-dollar question. It really is because, because it's, very, it's very, very difficult. And I think, that, I think that one thing, you know, nobody wants to see their spot, whether it's a hunting spot or a fishing spot. That's where you go. And you and maybe two other people know about that spot or go there very frequently. And all of a sudden you, you, you put it on Instagram or Facebook or write an article about it or do a TV show there, man, it's out there. And now there's not two people there. There's 20 people that want to go there. And, and you know what? It's not a spot for 20 people. It's a spot for two people. Like two people can comfortably hunt there. 20 people, everybody's in everybody's way and no one is successful. And the spot is, you know, it's gone for, the, for that. So, I mean, what I, I don't know that I have an answer to that, but I can tell you that before, before we do something or write about something or post something, I feel like there's a responsibility not only to the place and the fish or the ducks or the deer or whatever lives there. You have a responsibility there, but you also have a responsibility to these other people that hunt there or fish there. Like if 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 you've only ever seen two or three trucks at the at the boat ramp, how are those guys going to feel if all of a sudden there's 20? you know, and, and not, not really, not really that good. So the, so the real, the real fine line there is how do you, how do we in this place, in this time of a lot of younger people not being exposed to the outdoors, like, like I was, like you were as, as a young person, that's in, in a lot of ways, that's not happening. There's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of other things for kids to do. There's a lot of other things for parents to do. It, 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 it's difficult. I mean, it is difficult to get outdoors sometimes. And so in order to, you know, have, have the type of places that we have and the opportunities that we have, there's a balance, you know. You have to have hunters and you have to have fishermen so that you actually have people that care about these places enough to be part of conservation groups and to to buy the the hunting uh, gear that that you know the taxes go towards conservation and go towards you know fishing license fees go towards uh, you know having fishing game officers out there and boat ramps and every other thing. So there's a real fine balance between having people not hunt and fish and then not having a very big group of people that actually care enough to make sure that they're not strip malls built on every wetland in the country. And 
I don't know, man. It's a fine line because I don't know. In some ways, in some ways, the writer and the content creator needs to open their eyes and see a bigger picture of I'm going to get 5,000 likes or 5,000 followers if I post this video, but everybody that's at the boat ramp is not going to be happy with me. And then I think that the people that aren't happy need to also have a little bit uh, wider view of it and say, that has to happen. We need to get people interested in duck hunting, but can we do it in a way that we don't exploit these spots? Can we do it in a way that we don't tell somebody exactly where we are? We, we kind of promote the lifestyle. We promote, you know, this, this, um, this, this type of activity without, you know, just giving them A, B, C, and D without them having to do any work for it. So, I mean, it, it is a real, it is a real sticky subject and, and I see it, you know, and I've seen it happen and, and probably been part of it, you know, and it's, it's tough. It's, it is really tough and people certainly get really upset about it. I mean, yeah. I don't know. have you ever had any regretful, um, experiences with, you know, exploiting a place, um, that you really, you know, you didn't put the thing, you know, too much thought into it and thought, okay, this is okay. And then, you know, you see some negative well, repercussions. I've, been, or I've like been, I've been really pretty careful about, about that. And there's some places where, man, I would love to go shoot some television shows in a couple of these places and I'm just not going to do it because it's just, it would just lead to too much pressure in an area that can't handle it. So, you know, we try to be very general about where we are and what we're talking about. And luckily, I haven't had too many, too many um, situations that I can think of offhand that, that are deeply regretful. April Vokey had a couple and has also, uh, I remember in, in our interview, she was talking about, I think it was 2020 or one of the big shows was coming out there and she was being incredibly careful about the river that she took them to and what she was going to talk about and everything like that. And of course that's a much bigger audience than, than even sort of outdoors audience. But I mean, how many people are going to, that are watching 2020 are actually going to go to British Columbia and go fishing? Probably there's probably a higher, a higher percentage of those people that are watching, you know, NBC sports or, or something like that, that would actually take that opportunity to go up there. So I think you got to be careful everywhere, certainly social media. But I mean, that, that is really the delicate balance is, is promoting the sport and promoting the activity and being encouraging to people that are just getting into it, showing what it's about and, and being careful about how you, how you do that so that you're being respectful of the people that are around you but not not exploit it. So I don't know. Some people are better at it than others. That's for sure. I think we all have a lot to to learn in that in that regard of how to how to do that. Where is that balance? Yeah, absolutely. And I I think it, you know, what it really looking at your reach and then looking at the spot that you're at and like you said how do you do right by the story while still being vague or, you know, unspecific enough? Are you just saying, Oh, I'm out here in Northwest Kansas or, or I'm out here in Kansas. You know, yeah. one of those and things. then there's, then there's, you know, 
there's also the when you're too vague, then the the people that you're trying to reach the most are like, well, he's purposely not telling me where he is. I don't know. I mean, there was one opportunity that I had, which I guess I guess where this came up, and and it was fairly successfully done. I was a part of a movie that was done by Jamie Howard. And he did a whole series of movies. He did one called um, In Search of a Rising Tide. Then he did another one called Chasing Silver, which was a a movie about tarpon fishing in the Florida Keys. And then he did another one right after that that I was part of, and it was called Location X. And Location X was filmed in a... I, I signed an NDA, and I still won't tell anybody where it is, even though I'm sure most people that saw the movie knew knew where it was or or figured out where it was but one of the 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 guide that was going to be a part of this <laughs> he wore a buff on his face the whole time and never showed his face on the on the film and that was like the the hook he was almost like a professional wrestler that like Mr. Wrestling number 1 or number 2 that wore a mask the whole time and so I was on there and you could tell who I was, but I just flew into this location, undisclosed location, unnamed, didn't even really know what state it was in. And uh, so I fly in there, three or four other anglers fly in there and we go tarpon fishing with this guy that wears a mask the whole time. And this was, this was a movie that went out on DVD and then it was on ESPN and it was on NBC Sports, I think. And uh, it was very popular, incredibly popular. But the whole thing was that the guide would not be part of it if the location was being disclosed. And so Jamie, in his, in his wisdom, was like, well, that's the story, that we're not going to tell anybody where this place is. So it became Location X, and, and then it became this, this super secret about where it was. And I saw the storm coming, man, because... I saw that people were, I mean, he did a really good job in telling a story. He did a, a phenomenal job. He painted this picture that this place was this undiscovered wonderland of tarpon fishing that no one else fished. And so, obviously, everyone that's interested in tarpon fishing wanted to know where this was. I just kept my mouth shut. I was like, man, I'm not saying a word. I'm not going to be the one that says something that everybody says, well, Tom Rowland said that it's this place. So I just saw that coming and, and everybody was asking, like, that was what people would say. Hey, I saw you in location X. Where was that? And I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't know. I signed an NDA. I can't tell you. And honestly, I still don't tell people where it was even today. Like, I I just don't want to be, I just don't want to be part of that. So, so there's an example where the lifestyle was painted, the place was filmed successfully, the, the appetite of the, of the consumer was, was definitely, you know, like they, they fed the consumer what they wanted. I think a lot of things went right, went right on that one. Uh, a lot of people saw that movie and decided they wanted to go tarpon fishing one day, but the place was not intentionally exploited. Now, possibly the fact that it was intentionally told 
you know, that, that the producer was intentional, very intentional about it. Even the name of the movie was Location X. So it's like, we're not going to tell you. Well, maybe that makes people want to find it even more, right? Like, so <laughs> there is that possibility. But I, I thought that that was, I thought that that was well done. And I thought that, that it, it, you know, it, it, it satisfied what Jamie was trying to do. And, it, and, and to, to the point of this conversation, he and the guide that I was fishing with were very careful about it. And they decided, okay, we're going to do this, but we're going to do this under these parameters that we never tell anybody where this is and the guide's going to wear a mask. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I'm going to have to go check that out. Yeah, it's Howard Films. Jamie Howard, he was on my podcast and, and uh, he's got a lot of good stories. He just did another film, uh, which is another place where he had to be super careful. It was all about um, striper fishing and the, the striped bass migration all the way up the East Coast. And those striper fishermen are aggro, super psycho fishermen that uh, are very spot particular. And so he had to do it again, like there, you know, there might be a lighthouse in the distance or something like that, that you can't, you know, if you showed that, then everyone knows exactly where you were. So they had to be very careful about where they were filming, what's in the background. It's amazing what people will pick out and like, hey, were you over here? And it's like, oh, geez, man, how'd you know that? Yeah. Yeah, well, like, I've seen that. I've seen easy. that crooked tree before. Yeah, like, okay. <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful but, with that. You know, I mean, I think I think there's a difference between being careful and a difference between you know purposely exploiting something for the purposes of of short term gain, and uh, and that's really the world we're living in. You know, people want to people want to post something that's going to get them short term short term gain a lot of fans or a lot of likes or a lot of social media credibility and being willing to uh being willing to to just throw the spot away for for you know a thousand likes you know yeah and i think there's and there's a couple places i don't know if you feel like this in the fishing world too where you're like oh yeah i can say that okay i'm out here in the the florida keys on you know whatever thing well, you, because everybody you always have a community hole you know, like if I'm going fishing in Key West Harbor, everybody knows Key West Harbor. Everybody knows there's tarpon in Key West Harbor. You just go where the boats are. Like they move around in there and the fleet moves over here and everybody starts chumming for the tarpon in a certain area. Well, more tarpon move in there and that's the spot. And there's no secret there. There's absolutely right. no secret. And so the community halls are, they're fair game. And in fact, that's where you get that's where your bread gets buttered as far as somebody that that is 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 hired to promote fishing in Key West. Well, you fish in a place like that and you call it Key West Harbor and it is Key West Harbor and and there's an airport right there and you can fly in and these are the kind of fish you're going to catch. There's your story and you're you're promoting tourism and you're promoting the tourism that is going to fill all the guide boats around you and everybody's happy right. about that. But the, the, the difference is, is that when you, when you go away from Key West Harbor and you go to this hidden little island that has something incredibly special there and you do the same type of show there and you tell people exactly how to get there and exactly what to do and ex exactly how to catch these fish. And the next time you go there, there are five boats and, and that spot can't handle five boats. In fact, it can't even handle your boat every day. It can handle your boat once a month and that's it. 
And and when it gets more pressure than that, those fish leave. They they don't. I've seen it a thousand times where even even myself, without putting additional pressure on something like that, you've got a, a bonefish spot or you've got redfish under the bushes or whatever. You can go there and I get that spot dialed in. And I'm like, okay, the, the first of the outgoing tide, I'm going to be able to catch you know two or three redfish under this bush and I'm going to be able to do it today if I need to. Like there were so many spots where where you have you have that opportunity and you're having a tough day and the tide's right, you can go over there and you can make your customer happy and you can you can you can save the day. But if you hit it too many times, those fish leave and they they don't come back. And right. and you don't find another spot like that. So the the real delicate balance as a fishing guide and I'm sure as a duck hunting guide and a duck hunter is what do you do on the hard days? What where where do you where are you successful on the really difficult days where the where the winds in a in a in a direction that's not 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 good, the temperature, the cloud cover, whatever happens, doesn't allow for you to just go fish anywhere you want to, and that's when the the good guide is great and the and and can make a day out of adverse conditions, and those are the spots that are the most valuable the ones that are super delicate and that's when people get really upset is when that spot you know the spot that yeah. they're only going to hit once a season if the conditions are bad and you just can't make it happen anywhere else and now some guys talking about it on the radio or on a podcast or doing a youtube video about it that spot's done it's over yeah and that's why people get so upset about it. And I can understand it. I really can. It's tough. I had I had a little bit of, and then I think there's there's another part of this too is that, and I know it's prob- there's there's a lot of similarities between fishing and hunting when it comes to um, you know conservation and all that stuff. But there's a there's a few primary I think differences as well. But um, I basically got my you know start in waterfowl hunting along the Rio Grande. Uh, they're in El Paso and I will tell anybody that wants to know about it because it's a place that has zero conservation funding into it almost. Um, and it's a amazing riparian, uh, system that just, I mean, a couple, you know, maybe 30, 40 people I know that hunted that section of it. And, um, it was, it was amazing and it needed to be i think that you know the story needs to be told that there's this awesome international boundary waters um a place to hunt ducks in the middle of the desert and and trying to draw positive attention to it and attract you know maybe a little bit of conservation efforts to it is there you know have you ever had an experience with that like this is a place that needs help you definitely do and you know the Everglades National Park and you've got you've got You've got situations like the water, the water problems that we've had in South in South Florida this year have been severe, and there's a real delicate balance there of, you know, how much do we talk about these water issues to the public? Because does that deter tourism? Does that does that in turn negatively in, impact the guides that are making a living? off of tourists every single day and you start talking about red tide and algae blooms and and dirty water and and all of a sudden people don't want to come down there and fish but on the other hand if you don't talk about it 
then the wrong people get elected and it continues. So there's a real fine balance of how do you, and, and, and this is really an issue that, that the guides for the most part, up until this organization called Captains for Clean Water came around, most, yeah. most fishing guides just decided that the best idea was just not to talk about it. Just not to talk. There's an algae bloom in the, in the Florida Bay. Just don't talk about it because if you do, you know, it's going to affect tourism and, and everybody's going to suffer. And so right. it'll just, and just hope it goes away. And in most cases, it did. In most cases, it did. But then as science gets involved and they're like, well, there's more going on here. You know, you've got salinity issues in the north part of Florida Bay and you've got algae blooms over here and you've got too much fresh water in these areas and you've got not enough fresh water in these areas and it's a complicated issue and it's all happening because of political decisions that are being made or a lot of right. it's happening because of because of decisions that are being made on a political level that can yeah. be influenced by organizations like Captains for Clean Water and many others. And so then it kind of, you know, everybody kind of puts their heads together and says, well, do we, is this something, is this the time that we start talking about this? I mean, where, where's the tipping point to where it gets so bad that we talk about it and we try to make change on a, on a law level, like talking to the congressman and the senators and the president of the United States to make a serious change and a significant change in this so our grandchildren will be able to have similar experiences that we have. And that's what Captains for Clean Water started doing. And I, you know, I'm looking at it and I'm like, man, I think they're doing the right thing. I, I think that talking about the issue and doing a television show about the issue and doing podcasts about the issue and, and getting it out there in a way that people can understand what's going on is the right thing to do. And in the short term, yes, you're probably going to lose some tourism. But in the long term, we're going to regain, you know, what Florida is is known for and what's what the yeah. best part of Florida is. And that's a that's a gut wrenching decision to what do you do? Do you talk about it? Do you not talk about it? Where's where does your responsibility lie? And, right. and it's all about I think it's really about, you know, expanding your 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 view. Like, are you looking at the big picture? Are you not talking about it for short-term gain? Are you right. are you talking about it and knowing that there's going to be short-term loss and you're looking for long-term gain? Or is it the opposite way? And which is the right way? And which yeah. is the way that I mean it's almost like it's almost like, you know, the way people vote. It's like you vote based upon how it affects you. And, you know, sometimes it's a really difficult decision. Like this vote that I'm going to make right now is great for short-term gain, but maybe not good for long-term. And so which way do you go? Do you vote yes? Do you vote no? You know, yeah. and, and it's the same kind of thing on talking about these water issues. Do you do it? And, and my feeling is there's a responsibility to the people that have come before us and there's a responsibility to the people that are coming after us to the people that come before us. We're responsible for, for trying to take care of the Everglades. We're trying to, we're trying to make sure that, 
you know, we we have also the responsibility for to our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and all of those that are going to come behind us that we are stewards of the environment and yeah. we're going to do what is necessary to to take care of it. And, you know, luckily, luckily there, there are people out there like, like Captains for Clean Water and many other organizations, Ducks Unlimited and lots of others that, that decide that this is a worthy fight and they're going to put everything they have towards it. And, you know, as, as anglers and duck hunters and elk hunters and turkey hunters and pheasant hunters, and, you know, you can put your, your support, financial support, you know, maybe it's your political clout. Maybe it's maybe it's just talking to somebody about about the issues, so that they in turn are educated on them and can make their own decision about what they want to do. I think that there would be that much, too much more than what I wrote down for us to talk about between fishing and, and hunting and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But I was very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, people that like to be outdoors, you know, they're they're I don't know. I think there's similarities. There's so many similarities between hunting and fishing and, you know, just the, the balance between conservation and, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and especially waterfowl hunting, too, and fishing, because, you know, we're both concerned about, you know, public waterways and and the health of riparian systems and and uh, just everything else. So Yeah, it's all hand in hand. So I figured we'd uh, transition into a little bit about telling about uh, the listeners and uh, having a little duck talk. Sure. Yeah, as well. So you said that you did have some some duck hunting experiences growing up and that you still, it's your favorite, I think, I don't want to spoil it, it's your favorite form of hunting, right? Yeah, yeah, it's my favorite form of hunting because it reminds me so much of of my dad and, and just the times that we had and the times that we spent together doing that. I also like turkey hunting a lot because turkey hunting is a lot like permit fishing. It's funny to draw those comparisons between the two, but but I do. But duck hunting, duck hunting is has always been, you know, something that that my family has done. And uh, my dad used to pull me out of school early, and and we used to go duck hunting before school. Uh, we had some places in in Tennessee that we could go and hunt, mostly wood ducks. We could get in, you know, an hour or two of hunting right right early, and then I could get to school if I had a free period open. And so my dad was all about it, man. I mean, he was he was a duck hunter. He used to hunt every every uh every day of the season for you know many uh many years. He put a shower in at the office so that he could you know come straight from oh, hunting and and shower at the office and and get ready for work but uh i mean that's his that is his absolute favorite. He loves all kinds of hunting, but he is absolutely uh, a duck hunter at heart and and that's how i that's how I got it you know a lot of experience in the outdoors. Yeah, do you do you get out duck hunting much? And, uh, you know, I I wish I could go more. I I really do. Um, unfortunately, my opportunities to go duck hunting have shrunk a little bit, partly due to the the place that my dad was leasing kind of changed. Uh, it was a flooded flooded field that has really turned the the agriculture kind of changed a little bit, and the ducks aren't coming through in Tennessee. Um, it seems like, and, and I'm not certainly not an expert on ducks, um, but in my lifetime, I've seen that the flyway seems to just push into this area that we're, that we're hunting, uh, you know, on, on some years it's really good on other years, it's really, really sparse. 
and you just don't seem to know what's coming and you could have a really awesome year or or really not see much and and uh you know but you you do have the wood ducks and a lot of gadwalls and then when it's good you got a lot of mallards right but it, it's it's a little it's been a little inconsistent. So I, I like to go. I like, uh, I would like to go a lot more, but, um, lately it's been, uh, it's been a couple of trips over to, uh, Mississippi or Arkansas and, and that's about it. Right. So I guess the, kind of the, one of the last things that we wanted to talk about was, and I didn't, I didn't, I mean, you can tell by looking through your Instagram and whatnot, fitness. Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of people, especially outside of the, the hunting world, they look at hunters and fishermen and they don't, they think, you know, they, they usually think of some, you know, big old redneck or something like that, that, uh, just carries a gun around or sits there and <laughs> harms, yeah. you know, little creatures. And they don't necessarily see athletes or the athleticism that is required um, to do day in, day out um, hunting uh, in in the field or yeah. fishing in the field. Well, you, you, know? Know, you know, for some types of hunting and some types of fishing, ath- athleticism is not required. And for others, it is, it is, you know, the foundation of your success. And it just so happens that, you know, duck hunting can be very physical. Elk hunting is is basically mountain climbing. Sheep hunting is is uh, you got to be an ultra athlete able to carry super heavy stuff up incredibly steep hills. I mean, fitness is paramount in the type of fishing that I was doing. You know, I, I call it fishing. It was really guiding. I'm on the back of a boat pushing it with a stick, and you're doing that primarily into the wind for eight to 10 hours a day. And it is incredibly physical. And, you know, early on, when I first got down to uh, Key West, and, and, and even before before Key West, I was out, out west um, in a drift boat, rowing a boat all day long. That's physical. I mean, you are doing physical activity all day long. Now, even with that said, you can still get the guide body, which is Big, strong shoulders, chest, big, giant belly. And I see it all the time. And when I first got down to Key West, I I couldn't go more than two or three days without just being completely exhausted. And even when I started guiding, you know, I could go maybe four or five, six days in a row. And I had to have days days off. I mean, you, you get dehydrated. You're pushing that boat around. You're not used to it. Fitness for me, you know, I, I was an athlete in high school. I got so interested in fishing, I, I didn't think it was important. And I, I, I wasn't paying attention to my, my physical state as much as I was paying attention to, you know, learning how to fish and learn how to guide and, and doing, doing everything and that, that needed to be done. But I wasn't paying attention to my physical state for, you know, three or four or five years there. And it wasn't until we started having kids and, or we were getting ready to have our first child and he's 20, he's going to be 21. I was kind of like, you know, I'm not working enough. And it's because I'm having to take these days off. And I kind of felt like if I got in really good shape, I could probably work more. And so 
that was the beginning of it. And it, and that's absolutely what happened. I started running, getting in, in better shape. And I, you know, first of all, I wasn't getting injured. You know, when you're pulling a boat 300 days a year, it's very easy to get overuse injuries, just like anything else. You, 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 uh, have shoulder issues. A lot of guys have shoulder problems. A lot of guys have back issues uh, from riding around the boat, you know, banging around all day long. And so I just started figuring out that the better shape I was in, the more I could work. And the more I could work, the more I could take care of my family. And the more I could take care of my family, meant more money in our pocket. We could buy a house, all of this stuff. So I went from, from uh, not being able to make it through a week without being completely exhausted to work in 175 days in a row without taking a day off and then taking one day off and then working probably another 150 days right after that, taking one day off in a year. I mean, that's, that's, that's working. That was all due to the physical, the workouts and, and, and paying attention to, to hydration and nutrition and, and fitness like I was a professional athlete. And basically, if you are, I don't care if you're a construction worker or if you're, uh, you know, a bricklayer, if you're laying bricks 300 days a year, you're a professional athlete. That You are using your body in a capacity that you are making money off of your ability to move your body properly, right? The more you can, the more you can pick up, the more you can carry, the more money you make, the more days you can do in a row, the better off you're going to be. And being a being a fishing guide like I was, it's that same way. And the offshore guides, it's just as physical there. They're they're throwing the net every day. They're holding this forty pound net for you know hours and uh, and throwing it you know a dozen, two dozen times. It's it's hard work pulling the anchor. All of that stuff is incredibly physical and. There are guides that don't pay attention to it, and honestly, either they don't work as much, or they don't last very long, or the worst is that they just get really grouchy and grumpy or just not fun to be around. And um, But mostly, if you're not physically capable, you can't hang, and um, that, was, that was the start of, of my road to, you know, really putting fitness as, as number one. And I, I got to say that it, it kind of is number one. And, uh, it's a very selfish, it seems like a very selfish thing to say, but over the years I've, I've really thought about it. I'm like, no, I think fitness is number one because if I'm not strong, fit and healthy, I'm of no use to my family. And, you know, I like to say family's number one, but it is number one. If you're strong, fit and healthy, you know, then you can put family as number one. It's almost like, you know, Jocko Willink, um, do you know, do you follow his podcast? Uh, he wrote, um, he, he wrote, uh, oh, you should, you should definitely check it out. He's, uh, you'd, you'd like him. He was a Navy SEAL and, um, he, he's written some books and he has this, this, uh, this idea that he talks about all the time that discipline equals freedom. And if you are disciplined enough, you can, you can apply this anywhere. If you're disciplined enough to, you know, get your exercise in and be strong and be fit, you're going to have the freedom to be able to do whatever you want. You know, if your kid says he wants to go climb a mountain, you've got the freedom to be able to go do that with him. You're never going to be held back. If you've got the discipline to put in the work, you have the freedom 
to enjoy your time off. If you've got the, I mean, you can just continue to apply it everywhere within your life, you know, as it, as it applies to, to my life. I mean, it was the discipline of becoming very physically fit that you have the freedom to, to book 175 days in a row without worrying about taking a day off. And that's, that's how we bought our first house. You know, and that's how we got started on everything. But it, but I think fitness is, and I've noticed too. Yeah, when you say that, you know, there's times where you you'd think that man, I'd be more tired because I'm working out all the time. And so there's like, you know, you take a week off from working out, and you just notice that you're like, I'm requiring a lot more sleep. Um, You know, I'm not, I don't quite have the pep in my step, but the the mornings that wake up and you hit it hard. Uh, you can just go longer that day. Yeah. Um, and so it's not even just the long-term effects of uh, working out, but those short-term effects of waking up, getting your metabolism started, getting your levels right, and uh, moving out and yeah. keeping the momentum up. Yeah, there's, is, no, uh, there's no question. I mean, for me, it's it starts in the morning, and I'm usually doing something in the morning. And if, I, if, I, if I'm not doing something early in the morning, it's because... You know, I'm leaving the dock super early, or or going hunting, or doing something that that you know is a is a three thirty or four o'clock a.m. departure. Other than that, you know, the day starts at five. I, I get my workout in. If the day starts super early on a hunting or fishing day, then I get my workout in when I get back. And it can get pretty busy, and a lot of the travel stuff. But I, I've got these little short workouts that I can do on the road that just they're not going to be enough by themselves to to get you into world-class shape, but they're enough to maintain it until you can get back on your regular schedule. That's been a, that's been a big part of, you know, learning how to learn how to continue it on the road with no equipment is really, really important. I think because, you know, with what yeah. I do, there is a lot of that where you're, you're either operating out of a suitcase or a backpack or a, or uh, you're you're flying to different meetings or places or whatever, and and you know there there may be a hotel gym. I don't even bother with the hotel gym anymore. I just go to the parking lot, and I've just got all these different different workouts that I can take on with me on the road and and keep it together. But it's 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 super important. I don't know. For me, it's it it was super important, and it was it was so important early, purely on a physical. Uh, side of things. Over the years, I don't know if anything's changed or not, or if I just have a different perspective on it. But I almost think that the physical side is is still important. But but the benefits that I get from daily exercise are more mental, almost than than physical at this point. Just in just in you know, like you're talking about getting your levels right and everything. You you know, you just I just feel better. I just think better. Everything is. Is clear. I'm, I'm. I have less stress. I never feel. I never feel like I'm in a big giant hurry. I don't know. It, yeah. it just solves all of those things. And those are those are probably you know issues that that uh, you know when you when you exercise you got a flood of all kinds of stuff, a storm of things going on in your body, hormones and sweat, and oh, yeah. everything going on, and and then you're rehydrating and you're eating and you know, everything's happening. And then you get to this, this place, just like, I mean, you said it great. Like you're getting your levels right. And, and it's your, your stress level. It's your nutrition level. It's your hydration level. It's, it's everything. And I think that when you're exercising daily, you're paying far more attention to that 
kind of stuff than than when you're not. And uh, you know, your electrolytes get out of balance, your your hydration gets out of balance. You don't feel good, and and you're certainly not operating it at uh, at your best. I don't know. That's what daily exercise does for me. I think both both probably just like you think, like you said, getting your levels right, and then and then just the mental aspect of. At six o'clock in the morning, I've already done a lot. It used to be like that that old army commercial, like at seven o'clock in the morning, these guys have done more than you're going to do all day. And it's like, okay, well, you know, when you kind of start your day like that, it, it 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 gets you in a in a place to where you're you're feeling like you can accomplish just about anything because you've already done something, you know, pretty, uh, exactly. pretty big. Exactly. But you you do a lot. Of, you're you're quite active, right? I mean, you told me you ran like what, eight miles yeah. this morning? Yeah. Yep. I ran, I think it ended up being seven and a half is what the watch said. So what does fitness, how, how is it important in your life? So fitness is Im- important to me and one, like my job. And then two, I have to just, um, if I start getting <laughs> fat or if I start, you know, running, I run up the stairs real quick and I go, Ooh, that's not good. <laughs> I think to myself, like, that's not what I want to be. I don't want to start down the road where I'm a, and nothing against anything. Cause some people it's not important to them, but for me, I don't want to be 45 years old and be five foot 10, 280 pounds in the bad 280 pounds. You know what I mean? Uh, I want to be able to go on a run with my kid. I want to be able to physically outperform uh, my children until they hit their, uh, you know, mid teens, <laughs> especially when it comes to cardio, just so that they can have something to look up to and kind of, it's all about like overall health. I just wake up, I wake up and I feel better when I'm 180 pounds as opposed to uh, 200. Yeah. Yeah. It's a similar, similar kind of deal. You can, you can make it last a lot longer. I turned 50 this year and while I can't beat my kids in some things, I can still beat them in a whole lot of things. That's a, you know, obviously that's a, that's a goal. I mean, you know, not only do I want to beat my kids, I want to beat, beat my previous times and lifts and all all kinds of things. And I can, I I find myself still doing that. It's a competitive thing too. Cause I think that there's a lot of stuff that you can be competitive in the, in the world with, with other people. I miss, for instance, I miss being out on the mat going one-on-one with somebody. I miss. You're a wrestler too? Yes. I'm a wrestler. Nice. Well, I was a wrestler. Yeah. Well, you're always a wrestler. If you were a wrestler once, you're always a wrestler. What would you say? I said, if you were a wrestler once, you're always a wrestler. I mean, uh, yeah, that's what the, my, yeah. The wrestler, <laughs> the wrestler mentality. I mean, I, that's, that's my background wrestling. And, uh, both my boys yeah. were wrestlers. I was a wrestling coach and, and, yeah, uh, my and dad's a wrestling a coach, parent. So. Yeah. And so that's, that's amazing. Your dad's a wrestling coach. And so, so, that mentality stays with you for your entire life. And whether you, you call yourself a wrestler. Yeah, I, I still, uh, I, I'm uncomfortable sleeping on my back. My dad, anytime <laughs> that I'd be, anytime I'd be sleeping on my back, he, Hey, you practicing for next week's meet, yeah. you know, that's funny. That's, yeah, funny. that's funny. But, uh, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of things in wrestling, um, you know, being pitted one-on-one because, you kind of have to own up to the realization that if you mess up out there, it's nobody else's fault. There's, and that's, yeah. I always thought that was the most nerve wracking, the most, uh, the mentally challenging part about wrestling besides cutting weight was yeah. 
getting yourself ready. And I, I always remembered it once I shook, once we shook hands and the whistle blew, like there was any, there was no fear after that. Yeah. Uh, there was always a little bit of fear going up into the, you know, like, oh, you know, like, how am I going to perform against this guy, whatever. But then as soon as it was out there, that was when, you know, things started. That's when it clicked. And, yeah, I knew I liked you. I knew that I knew that we were going to get along great. I didn't know that you were a wrestler. But it's funny, though. I've had this I've had this I had this um, conversation with a lot of people. I had this guy, uh, Gregor Gillespie, who's in in. Um, the UFC right now. And he calls himself the best fisherman in MMA and uh, had him on the podcast. And I was asking him like, why is it that wrestlers get so into fishing and hunting? Like what, what is it about that? And I think what we both decided is that wrestlers are just aggro and whatever you get into, you get way into it. And, and I think it goes back to, you know, practicing and drilling and, and just the way the culture is set up for wrestling is that you drill and drill and drill and drill and drill until it comes, becomes second nature. And then you become really good at something as simple as, you know, uh, a head throw or a single leg takedown or a finish, some sort of finish or just throwing a half on somebody becomes absolutely second nature to the point that, you don't have to think about it at all. And then once you develop that and, and master something like that, you can do that with anything in your life. And, you know, often in the same way, like I found myself doing that with fly fishing and, and spin casting that you, you practice and practice and practice and practice and practice and practice until it's absolutely second nature. You know, people that don't wrestle look at that and like, man, that guy, he just won't stop practicing. Yeah. But I think one of the most important parts about wrestling is, is that you have these, um, these goals that you have to do, or that, you know, this is the end state. You think, how am I going to wrestle a different guy every minute for 16 minutes? It's not, that's impossible. You can't do that. You know what I mean? Or how am I going to lose this X amount of pounds in these and over this course of time and, you know, retain my ability to be strong and hydrated and whatnot, or just going into knowing that you're going into a two and a half hour practice on the mat um, with the, the heat cranked up and um, it's, you know, the morning before Thanksgiving and at the end of, you know, going, you go in pretty much everything that you do and knowing like, this is going to suck and this is going to be hard and I don't know how I'm going to get through it. And then it, you get through it and you're fine and you're better for it. And so that teaches you a lot, I think, um, no about, question, you know, man. yeah, you, you look across the, you know, a mile and a half mud flat, knowing that you got to drag a John boat all the way over there and you don't know how you're going to do it, but you know, that you can get it done because you've been been through worse <laughs> yeah so i mean that's what dan gable says once you wrestled everything else is easy including dragging yeah. that boat across a mile and a half mud flat in waders that's not easy it's also not easy to pull a boat into 20 knot wind you know for two miles down the flat and and it's all the same you just you just like well just grit your teeth and do it you know and and a lot yeah. of that comes from wrestling and i wanted to make sure that my kids wrestled i didn't really care if they made a full-on career out of it, but I wanted them to wrestle, and I made sure that they wrestled for at least a few years, and both of them went much further than that. But the goal was I want them to wrestle enough to know what it's all about and to, yeah. to, to learn these lessons that we just talked about. And if they choose to go on, that's fine. If they choose not to, that's fine too. But 
They're going to be tougher for it. They're going to be better for it. And both of the boys decided that they, that wrestling was their primary sport, and they 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 followed it all the way through high school, and then didn't didn't wrestle after that. But it's just such an important thing. And I don't know. I I, I always, I mean, it's funny. I would I would go and wrestle with my son. I mean, even this time last year when he was a senior in high school, I was going into the room and wrestling with him. And uh, well, that's hard. Um, even being in really good shape, it's it's hard to wrestle with a seventeen year old man that's trying to win the state championship and 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 you're trying to survive the practice you get pretty sore from that i don't know when the last time you've been on the mat is but it's it's an eye opener about how physically demanding that is but anyway i i will i will always identify as a wrestler like that's just I, when i think about the the lessons and the successes and failures that I've experienced in in life and and how it always comes back to you know I was able to overcome that because of the lessons I learned in wrestling. I don't know, it's almost a daily occurrence that I think, well, you know, just like you're saying, you look at that mud flat and you think, well, I can do it. And it may not be until a couple of years later that you realize, well, you were able to do it because of your background in in this crazy culture of wrestling that that just taught you that you just do it. <laughs> it's interesting though. Well maybe that's a good place to end it on the on the wrestling note. Absolutely. But all right, well I thank you very much for uh, you know, taking the time out of your day to, to <laughs> talk to me a little bit about the, you know, <laughs> well we covered a quite uh, a wide variance <laughs> of uh, topics today. Yeah. So that's <laughs> yeah. Wasn't well, expecting to talk about wrestling, but that's the kind of that's that's what you get when you get. Well, I, uh, ho- I hope it was good. I mean, I know you had you had uh, a little bit more of an agenda than I go into with my with my podcast, but I, I hope it was good, and and you know I hope your audience enjoys it. I know that uh, we're going to share this both on, on your podcast and on my podcast. Your podcast is Foul Front, F-O-W-L-F-R-O-N-T. Is that correct? That is and, correct. And tell my audience where where they can find all of your stuff. Yeah. Uh, so you can find us um, just on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, any place that you can listen to a podcast. Um, and you can also, we also have a listeners group. It's Foul Front, Waterfowl Listeners Group on Facebook. And then, uh, we've got an Instagram account. Probably be doing some YouTube stuff here in the the next uh, year or so. So cool. All right. And then, uh, we are in all the same places. The podcast is called Tom Roland podcast, R O W L A N D. And there's a website, Tom com. Then of course, uh, all the TV shows that we do, we have three TV shows, saltwater experience into the blue and Sweetwater, um, all of those have Instagram. Most of them are, I think it's Into the Blue TV, Sweetwater TV, and then it's Saltwater underscore experience. That's the one that I'm on. And then I have a personal Instagram that I'm fairly active on, and that's Tom underscore Roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D. So, um, yeah, love to have anybody uh, come over and check out some other episodes, and, and uh, I'd like to do some other things with you in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe get you out to Kansas and, and we'll shoot some Man, birds. I'm in for that. You won't have to <laughs> be careful what you wish for. I'll, I'll be there. I mean, that's the kind of invitation you don't throw around loosely. I, 
I like duck hunting, and I would. I've never hunted in Kansas. I've never. I've actually never hunted west. Well, I guess. I guess barely west of the Mississippi River, but most of the duck hunting, the best duck hunting, is is uh, Arkansas, Mississippi area that I've done, and then Tennessee is. Yeah, we've had some good hunts here, but it's a little bit of a struggle, and it's a little better over there. But, yeah, we're uh, thick with them right now, it, so I'll do it. I'll come. Hey, the Casa de la Page has you know three spare bedrooms, so yeah. good. Well, I, seriously, let's, let's maybe try to set that up. I don't know when you when when something like that would work out for you, but but I'd really like to set it up. I'd love to bring my dad. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we'll talk about it offline here. All right. Cool, man. <laughs> well, thank you very much. All right. We'll hey, talk thanks, to you Tom. Soon. See you. Thanks, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ben Page from Foul Front Podcast. Go check out his website his social media and his podcast and ben thank you very much for having me on your show i really appreciated it we had some uh interesting things and who would have known a wrestler i knew i liked that guy when he when he first contacted me and now i know why we got a lot of things in common i have to get out there and go duck hunting with him anyway until next week we'll see you later